From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Dr. Elaine Carmack of the Brookings Institution joins me to discuss the much-anticipated report by Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Does the Mueller report put an end to the cloud that has hung over the Trump administration practically since its inception? That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. After 22 months, the much-anticipated Mueller report is finished. According to the summary written by Attorney General William Barr, Mueller found there was no collusion between then-candidate Donald Trump or any individual associated with his 2016 presidential campaign in Russia, but took no official position on obstruction of justice, leaving it to the Attorney General, who decided there was not enough evidence to bring charges. So where does this leave us? Is this good news and exoneration for the president? Has he dodged a political bullet, or is this merely the end of the first chapter? Joining me today to discuss the president and the Mueller report, we welcome Dr. Elaine Kmark. Dr. Kmark is the founding director at the Center for Effective Management at the Brookings Institution, located in Washington, D.C. Dr. Elaine Kmark, welcome to the Public Morality. Thanks for having me. You know, it, it almost felt to me that after 22 months of a much-anticipated report, all we have is the Eternal General's summation, so it leaves those of us in the chattering class uh, groping for a cogent response, and I wonder how you saw that. Well, I I think that's the case, and I think that people are sort of jumping ahead to conclusions um, that the president would like them to jump ahead to, which is, up oh, nothing there, nothing there. Uh, there's a long report. There's a lot of investigation. We need to see what's in it. And I expect that there will be weeks, if not months, of legal wrangles between the Congress and the Justice Department in terms of how much they release. I expect some people in Congress will eventually get to see the redacted parts of this report, in other words, the ones that um, have, you know, sensitive intelligence material in them. And then we'll have a much clearer picture of what this was all about. One of the things that's so strange about this is that the actual collusion was probably never going to be proved. Probably it's the case that Donald Trump never had a conversation with Vladimir Putin saying, hey, help me in the election and I'll lift sanctions. You know, that was never going to be the case. And yet the president was very, very successful in making that the standard, as opposed to a pattern of interaction with Russia that raises suspicions about his ability to look at American policy in terms of American interests. So that's an excellent point, because for the myriad tweets that the president put out, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, that became the the terrain by which he was uh, measured. So therefore, no collusion, ergo, I'm exonerated. I'm hearing you say it's more complicated than that. Yeah, it was always it was very clear that, 
his repetition of that was meant to create that as the standard. And if we let's go back to Watergate for a minute, because I think that's instructive. Even in Watergate, as more and more close aides to the president were indicted and convicted and sent to jail, there still was no proof that the president actually knew about any of this stuff. In fact, it was the word of one young lawyer, John Dean, against the president of the United States. It wasn't until the taping system was discovered and on the tapes, the president was heard directing H.R. Haldeman to tell the CIA to tell the FBI to back off the Watergate investigation that we had the proverbial smoking gun, you know, and that, that did in Nixon's presidency. So if you look at that history and then you apply it to what's gone on here, um, it certainly is, there's a lot of smoke around this, right? There's a lot of suspicion. There's, there's business dealings with Russia going back decades. There's his aides who were um, playing footsie with the Russians, taking money from them. There's a lot of funny things going on. But there never was anything and probably is not, aren't, is not in the Mueller report. There's nothing. Let me say that again. But there is nothing in the Mueller report that is a smoking gun. And frankly, there never was going to be, which is why the president could be so sure of saying there was no collusion. That doesn't mean, however, that there is some kind of conflict of interest between the president and, uh, let me start again. That doesn't mean, however, that there isn't a conflict of interest caused by the fact that the president has owed a great deal of his financial success to uh, sweetheart loans from Russia. And that, I think, is probably what's going to be in the Mueller report if and when we ever see the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Isn't part of the challenge that we face, let's just assume momentarily that that the public um, does gain access. And by the way, I know I'm dating myself, but when you say if we, if we ever see it, it makes me sound like we're talking about the Zapruder films. I mean, just if, yeah. we, <laughs> but, but isn't part of our challenge in that we're just, we're, we become such a, a distrusting nation and with only the attorney general's interpretation. So in some respects, though counterintuitive until more eyes actually see the report, well, it's really premature to even discuss anything at this point, even though you and I are just... <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, we more eyes need to see the report, and Democratic eyes and Republican eyes in the Senate, who are not on the, you know, in, on part of the executive branch, uh, Congress needs to see the report, right? Congress needs to see it. Now, it, it's entirely possible that Congress will see it, and they will simply say, okay... There was a lot of stuff there, but nothing that really concerns us. And as Nancy Pelosi has said today, uh, let's get on and let's legislate. That's what we are for the American people, things that they're interested in. This may be a bunch of nothing. If it is, you have to wonder about the president's own strategy. He has acted from the beginning like he was guilty. And between, you know, throwing his aides out of the Oval Office when he was meeting with the Russian ambassador, firing Comey, everything he's done is acted like he had something to hide. If there's nothing to hide, you have to say, you have to question his judgment here. Mm -hmm. 
And I, and I know my next question um, places you in the realm of speculation, but it, it, any thoughts why Special Counsel Mueller uh, essentially punted on the issue of obstruction of justice? Oh, very. I, that's very clear. Um, you cannot, in fact, indict a sitting president. Most lawyers agree with that. And so he was not going to refer this for to the courts, as he did with Manafort and the other presidential aides who were in trouble. Um, this is clearly a congressional issue. It is clearly an impeachment issue. Um, this The issue is, will the Congress think that the president was guilty of obstruction of justice? He punted this because, frankly, this is in the this is in the Constitution gives Congress the ability or the the responsibility to make that judgment. And I don't think he felt comfortable making that judgment. And I think that was the right thing to do. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Elaine K. K. Mark of the Brookings Institution. Um, uh, uh, Dr. K. Mark, staying with obstruction of justice, one of the talking points. We, we hear is that there can be no obstruction if there's no underlying crime. Now, which to my novice ear uh, sounds that one can obstruct justice as long as there's no underlying crime. And, but can the two be parsed so neatly? I'm, I'm just speaking in the abstract. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not a legal expert on this, but it, it sounds a little weird. Why would you obstruct justice? if there is no underlying crime. Why wouldn't you let this go forward? I mean, let's face it. Steve Bannon, the president's former aide, said at the time, or shortly thereafter, that firing Comey was one of the biggest errors that any American president has ever committed. Um, You know, if you play this whole tape backwards and you say, well, what if the president had gone into the Oval Office and in the spring of 2017 and said, boy, oh boy, there's looks like the Russians were trying to fool around with our democracy. This is terrible, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. You know, it, we would have had a different story going forward. So part of this, the president brought on himself by looking and acting like he was guilty and he was trying to cover up something. Uh, now, when you look Beginning with uh, the, the the time that um, uh, Mr. Mueller was appointed special counsel uh, to Attorney General Barr's uh, uh, summary uh, to Congress, uh, how would you um, assess this process? Well, I would assess it as a very, very unusual situation that what you had the FBI picking up were contacts between somebody who was running for president of the United States, his associate, and one of our longest-standing enemies in the world. That's Russia. And that they this rang all sorts of bells in the world of counterintelligence. Because, after all, the Russians would like nothing more than to own a president of the United States straight out of a, straight out of a, uh, a novel. In fact, if you went to a, a Hollywood producer with this plot, they'd say, ah, that's too unrealistic. <laughs> okay? So, um, you know, I think this was ringing bells. There was enough going on there that people were seeing en- enough contacts, and Manafort 
particularly, remember, had drawn their attention long before he was working for Trump. Uh, they were watching him. Okay? They were watching him for potential counterintelligence information. And so I think that this was a potentially an issue that was potentially so serious that they had to investigate it and they had to bring it out. Now, again, I think that both the, the some Democrats got way, way ahead of the curve on this one. Um, Tom Steyer has been a, a billionaire out of California, has been spending millions of dollars to try to get Trump impeached. And I think that was, he was, you know, not helping the process at all. And as I said before, the president wasn't helping the process because he kept looking, he kept doing things, saying things, tweeting things that frankly made him look guilty as opposed to simply cooperating with this. To this day, he has not said that it's really awful that the Russians tried to interfere in our election. Frankly, if he just said that, it would be, uh, it would, it would help the situation. Well, we've come a long way. I just I can't remember the the other um, forty three men, uh, not counting Grover Cleveland twice. The other forty three men <laughs> be, being president of the United States saying, "Well, I asked the Russian president about something controversial, and he said he didn't do it, so I believe him." I asked jo- I asked Joseph Stalin, I believe him. I asked Nikita Khrushchev, I believe him. I asked Leonid Brezhnev, I believe him. So I just couldn't imagine any other president making that statement, and it, it'd sort of be okay. I got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um. I mean, again, the entire context of this presidency has been very, very strange. I mean, who would believe Vladimir Putin? Right on face value, and we shouldn't. I mean, we shouldn't believe any foreign leader on face value. But there are some that have been friendlier than to us than others. Uh, Vladimir Putin clearly does not have the interest of the United States front and center in his mind. So, so again, there's been so much smoke about around this. Much of it created by the president of the United States himself. Why would a president? throw out his aides from the Oval Office in order to talk privately with the Russian ambassador? Why would he throw out State Department people from a meeting with Putin in order to talk privately with Putin? These are things that really, you know, maybe it could be totally innocent, but frankly, it's just one more of the, of the pattern of things the president has done that's made him look compromised. Uh, from the very beginning, hmm. I mean, to, to, you know, one of the overarching themes uh, for me, uh, my words, not yours, that that this issue sort of highlighted to me was we've become incessant on a desire for a predetermined outcome. You sort of alluded to it earlier. For some yeah. people, only the president being led out of the White House in an orange jumpsuit in handcuffs would have sufficed, and for others, complete and total exoneration. Um, and if, it, if that means dragging, you know, someone like Robert Mueller through the mud, so be it. And, and somewhere in there, there's this thing called um, nuance that we've just sort of advocated as, as a culture. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's part of our polarized politics. It's part of our Twitter age where we want everything summed up neatly and in 132 characters, and that's it. Um, The fact is that this is a much more nuanced story. 
And I think the important thing now is that the Congress start looking at the president's policies vis-a-vis Russia and, frankly, North Korea. He's done, he's taken a lot of steps here which people do not agree with. The Senate looks like it's waking up to its, to its constitutional responsibility to check the president. They've done that in several ways. And I think that they have got to be just a lot more careful in checking the president on his foreign policy actions especially because there he has greater leeway than he does in domestic policy. Dr. K. Mark, just just in general, given that we are a democratic republic form of government, government, can we function without nuance? I mean, can we function successfully without nuance? Well, I think we need nuance. We mostly need it in our leaders. So we need nuance right now in the two places that the Constitution tells us will check the executive. We need it in the courts, and we need it in the Congress. And that's where you have to hope that people will take each issue as it comes and evaluate it on its merits, apart from the Twitter wars, etc. And we will get some good government out of that. Um, The press and the the public discourse is, is a little bit crazy right now. And that's where I think we need the congressional leaders and the leaders in the judiciary to use nuance and to make some common sense out of the the Twitter battles that are going on. Um, now that you give that wonderful answer about nuance, now now I'm going to throw you a curve. We're going to okay. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, what would happen? If there is a wide discrepancy between the attorney general's summation of Mr. Mull's report and what's actually in the report, well, that's very, very clear. It goes to Congress. It goes to the Judiciary Committee. The, you know, Mueller was constrained in terms of what he investigated, and he's a lawyer's lawyer, as they've said. So he was operating very narrow um, terms. If there is a discrepancy, it is then the responsibility of the House Judiciary Committee to take the full Mueller report, do their own investigation, beginning with what's in the report, and take it where they see fit. Um, They are the ones that have the authority to put together articles of impeachment. And that's that's where it goes. So we do have a, there is a second act here. And it depends on how clear or how murky the situation is after other people have looked at everything in the report and done some of their own investigating. Well, in, in the zero-sum game world that, that, uh, and political discourse that we live in, I'm, I'm hearing you say it might be a little premature to declare, for the, for the president in this case, to declare full exoneration. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, again, as we discussed earlier— he set up what he wanted to be the metric here. The metric was no collusion, okay? And it is pretty clear, my guess is that they're not going to find any direct collusion, right? Um, but, you know, uh, who knows, right? Who knows what he said in his meetings with Putin or, or whatever. 
Um, but I don't think they're going to find collusion. The question is then, when they look at the whole picture, when they look at where the money, how money was moving, when they look at transfers from Russian banks to various interests around the world, what are they going to find there? And, and do, does that make people uncomfortable? Or do they think this was just a normal business practice, maybe a little bit in the gray area, but we're going to let it go? I don't know what that story is, but there is clearly another story. Well, well, the the attorney general is obviously a, a summary, so he did not mention um, th- some items that we do know are probably in the uh, most likely in the Mueller report. For example, the FBI's counterintelligence investigation, the president's true financial status, um, nor his actual, as you just alluded to, we don't know what the actual relationship. Uh, with Russia. So no collusion seems to me does not mitigate any of the aforementioned items I just mentioned. Right. There's there's obviously a lot of other things. And of course, the interesting thing, which we haven't talked about yet, is that this has prompted a widespread, wide, this has prompted a great big investigation by the Southern District of New York. And that is an investigation looking into Donald Trump's business empire. And while that may not be impeachable um, in terms of what the Constitution says, it is really going to open up, I think, a can of worms for the Trump organization because people are going to see how they've done business. And if, as is suspected, they have done a lot of business over the years with a lot of Russians and a lot of Russian banks that are backed by the government, then I think it opens up this suspicions about his motivations all over again. You know, a couple, you know, one of the things I was I was certainly um, uh, I found interesting is um, I, I, what happened to George uh, Nader, a, a Lebanese um, lobbyist. You know, he, he was cooperating. Um, why why did the Mueller team secretly meet with Eric Prince and Seychelles? So. There's still a lot. There's still a lot we don't know. Right. There's a there's a lot we don't know at this point, though. I think, given that we are what um, eight months away from eight nine months away from the beginning of another presidential election year, at this point, my guess is that these investigations will continue, and. In the end, it may not be the Congress that makes the final decision on Trump. It may be the American people in the 2020 elections. And um, I think a lot of people in Congress are more comfortable with that because they don't want to bear the this, this suspicion that the Trump, Trump operations are trying to put out there that somehow this is a coup. I think it's cleaner and neater for everybody, uh, the Democrats think, if they just beat the guy. Do, 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 you, do you worry that um, we have become almost cavalier about the notion of impeachment? I do worry about that because, of course, the um, Bill Clinton impeachment was really very, very partisan. And the country agreed with it. I mean, it's interesting that in the 98 midterm election, that's the second midterm of a president's term, and 
usually the president lose, president's party loses a lot of seats. Well, Democrats actually picked up seats in 1998, um, which most people interpreted as a judgment on the folly of the Republicans in their impeachment process. So I think we need to understand that impeachment is for very, very serious crime. And obstruction of justice in the Nixon administration was clear, it was proven, and while Nixon was never technically impeached or convicted, um, he resigned the presidency knowing that those two things were foregone conclusions. Well, so, if he, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. sorry. I was just saying, if history serves me correctly, while Nixon wasn't impeached, there were the votes in the House, and as Barry Goldwater informed him, there were also the votes in the Senate, as opposed to Newt Gingrich, who knew he never had the votes in the Senate to convict Bill Clinton, but did it anyway. And are you concerned that something that that we might that that could emanate in the House? I, I hope it doesn't. And everything that Nancy Pelosi and Denny Hoyer and her leadership team has said indicates that they don't want to go in that direction. Okay, they do not want to. Um, they do not want to impeach. Um, she's very unenthusiastic about that idea. There are Democrats outside of the House um, who are beating the impeachment drum, but in the House, I don't think that that's the dominant feeling. It certainly isn't the feeling of the leadership. And so uh, unless there's something really, really dramatic and clear-cut that comes out when we see the full Mueller report, um, I don't think they'll go there. And, and, and so so I'm hearing you say that they just the way Democrats should proceed going forward would just be to exercise caution, void of a smoking gun, that is let the people decide. Yeah, yeah. I mean, keep, the investi- keep investigating because there's so much there that is that is worthy of investigation keep investigating let the american public know what we find about donald trump about the way he's conducted his business life etc but short of a smoking gun i'm not sure that impeachment makes any sense in this context especially because we're going to have an election soon and the people can decide for themselves So, to use a term coined by uh, Winston Churchill, would it be fair to say that this is merely the uh, end of the beginning? (laughs) (laughs) I think it probably is. I mean, I think the fact that there's a second front has opened up in the Southern District of New York, and this this did not happen, by the way, in Watergate. There was no second parallel investigation. I think this second front that's opened up in New York is going to be for the Democrats the gift that keeps on giving. And, and, and yeah, I was going to say for our listeners, would you mind um, just alluding to some of the things that the, that the Southern District is, is, is looking at? Well, uh, w- among these things they're looking at are the allegations that Michael Cohen made that basically involve bank fraud and tax fraud. That, in other words, it looks like it's alleged that Donald that the Trump organization routinely inflated assets and that and so they could get loans, and that, of course, would constitute bank fraud, and deflated assets for tax purposes, that's tax fraud. Uh, for normal Americans, those are pretty serious things. We, we all try not to do them. And so 
if the Trump organization has proceeded um, in sort of criminality for some years, that's not going to be a good story for Donald Trump, who, after all, got to office on one single important message. He was a great businessman, and he could run America the way he ran his company. And if that underlying trope, so to speak, to use a kind of funny old-fashioned word, it turns out not to be true or to be based on fraud, then I think people are going to really look twice at him uh, as president. I want to go back, finally, I want to go back. We we touched about nuance. And from your perspective, I mean, you you spent a lot of time uh, researching this stuff and thinking about it, but to the average person who's hearing it on their favorite medium of choice, how would you like to see us sort of adjudicate this just in the public discourse? I think in the public discourse, there's, there's two parallel lines, right? One is, is this man who we elected um, worthy of re-election? Does he have the kind of character that we want to see in a president? And, you know, we knew a little bit about his character, but now we know a lot more. There's porn stars, there's Playboy bunnies, there's extramarital affairs, there's potential cheating and lying in his business life. And then the second parallel front is, do we like what he's doing as president? Um, And there I think some people do like some things he's done as president, but there's the very destructive foreign policy towards our allies, which people are uncomfortable with. And this morning, uh, the White House is opening up a new front trying to undo Obamacare, which since 52 million people are, um, you know, involved in it, I think that's kind of a maybe a big problem for him down the road. So I think there's going to be two ways that people evaluate him. In the Clinton impeachment, which was our most recent, it was it was interesting the way the public opinion played out on that. Um, they were obviously appalled at his actions with a young intern who was young enough to be his daughter. Um, they said things to pollsters like, no, this is not somebody that I want my kids to grow up like. I, I don't respect him. He's not, he doesn't have a good character, et cetera, et cetera. But at that point in history, we had record low unemployment, low inflation. We weren't at war with, in any big wars with anybody. It was 1998. Things were pretty rosy. And they gave him high approval ratings for the way he conducted the presidency itself. So, you know, the, the, they were, the public was of a split mind. Here, I think, they, the public already has serious doubts about Donald Trump's character. Um, and they're not necessarily as wild as they could be about his performance in office, even though there are some, some measures, um, unemployment for sure, and the state of the economy, that are pretty good. And uh, could save him in the end. Now, I mean, we, any other president with just the numbers. I mean, we also know that economics is a social science, so how people feel determine a lot. But just the numbers alone, if you just those approval ratings usually put a, would put a president in the mid fifties at, at at least. Right. He has never gotten close to fifty. He peaks at about forty five, and he his approval has gone between thirty six and forty five. 
And that is pretty dangerous. Um, and it's pretty dangerous for a president seeking re-election. It's just not a good place to be. Well, Given that he has presided over a pretty good economy, um, those numbers are even more serious. What would, and, you, yeah. what I was say, would you attribute th- that point right there? Would you attribute that to a governing style that seems unable to expand the base? Oh, absolutely. Look. What, uh, among the many, you know, interesting things about the Trump presidency is that he has no interest in expanding the base and never has from the very beginning. And to a certain extent, he might be able to get away with that. This is a better strategy for Republicans than Democrats because their base is bigger than the Democratic base. Um, and it all, the Electoral College also plays to his advantage in that respect, because there are a lot of states that are very sparsely populated, but are deeply red, and so you get a—they have a sort of a—they uh, get a big—you get a bigger bang for your buck when you win some of those states. So the elect between the electoral college, there's a certain rationale to that. On the other hand, frankly, the 2018 midterms didn't. Um, shouldn't be a cause for a lot of confidence in that strategy because he lost in classically Republican areas. You know, there's all this attention paid to the young um, left-wing politicians in the Democratic, uh, who got elected in, in 2018. Of course, the real story is not them. The real story is the many more Democrats who got elected in Republican districts. And that's where Donald, that's what Donald Trump has to be worried about, that the voters who abandoned the, Demo- the Republicans in 2018 may abandon him in 2020. And you're referring to congressional districts that he won in 2016 went blue in the, in the, in the midterm elections. That's right. And, and that, that was, that was the ball game in 2018, which, which we forget because everybody's sort of talking about the left wing of the Democratic Party. But the ball game in 2018 was the were those districts where Donald Trump won and the Repub- and the Democrats took him over in 2018. So so the first chapter has ended with the Mueller report. Uh, Dr. Uh, Elaine K. Mark for the Brookings Institution. We'll have to have you back for chapter two. How's that sound? That sounds like a great idea. Thank you, Byron. Thank you so much. You have a great day. You too. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 